You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. Welcome to Harper Audio Presents. This is Caitlin Gehring with Harper Audio. I had the chance to speak with Richard Kadri, author of The Getaway God at San Diego Comic-Con. The Getaway God is book six in the Same Man Slim series. Once again, Earth, Heaven, and Hell are teetering on the brink of destruction. The Anger Umya are trying to break back into the universe. And with the angels still at war, God in the midst of mental breakdown, still. And Hell not really doing much better. James Stark is pretty much the only one who has any hope of stopping them. And if that wasn't bad enough, a new evil stalks L.A., a killer known as St. Nick, someone that Stark knows all too well. Before we dive into the interview, let's listen to a short clip from The Getaway God, narrated by McLeod Andrews. I've been back on the vigil payroll for a couple of weeks, and things are going swell. Where is he? says Wells when he sees me and Candy. There was a problem, I say. What kind of problem? I hold out the ice chest. Wells' eyes narrow when he opens the lid an inch before dropping it down again. What in all of God's creation is wrong with you? I sent you on a simple snatch and grab. I wanted to question this man. Where's the rest of him? in a meat locker near Sunset and Echo Park, along with a dozen other dead Angra fans. They built a Sistine Chapel out of body parts in one of the freezers. You might want to send a team over before the cops haul away all the evidence. You can get the GPS off my phone. Don't move, says Wells. He pulls out his Blackberry and thumbs in a text like he wants to punch the keys in the face. When he's done, he sighs and peeks in the cooler again. Why did you even bring that thing here? I'm not paying you by the scalp. He didn't do it, says Candy. Well, not all of it. Just the last part to get his head off. The guy did the rest himself. Wells turns to Candy. It's the first time he's acknowledged her presence. It's truly a comfort knowing that your paramour only partly cut off the head on a key witness in our investigation. So I'm here with Richard Cadre at San Diego Comic-Con um, 2014, and as you can hear, we got outdoor noise of helicopters. We got some LARPing in the background and general fandom. But we're sneaking an interview before you go off and do all your panels and get to meet people. And thank you so much for making time. My pleasure. Glad to be here. So tell us a little bit about Sandman Slim and specifically the getaway god. Well, Sandman Slim is a character, um, the nickname for a man named James Stark, who was unjustly sent to hell and escaped 11 years later uh, when his girlfriend was murdered. Mm-hmm. Since then, he's been living on Earth for really the first six books that ends with the getaway god uh, is the course of his first year back on Earth. So it starts at Christmas and it ends at Christmas. Um, The getaway god kind of wraps up this whole six book arc that started with um, Stark, uh, Sandman Slim, facing off against his 
big enemy, Mason Fame. We, um, along the way, um, he's become involved both with Mason and with this um, cult in Los Angeles that worships elder gods that used to run the universe here. And Getaway God is primarily about that fight, trying to figure out, even if you can fight, old gods. And, um, you know, is he going to have a girlfriend by the end of the book, too? Because that happens. While you're trying to fight old gods, there's still domestic stuff that happens, too. Yeah, it puts a little strain on the relationship, Yeah, exactly. But actually, since you brought up Mason, that's actually a dynamic I'm always really fascinated between Stark and Mason, because they seem so similar. Exactly. But not quite. Can you kind of speak to the dynamic and just like kind of how you develop those characters? Well, you know, I always thought of them as like each one at a different point in their life could have been the other. Mm -hmm. But it didn't work out that way because Mason, I really felt like Mason had just a little more drive than Stark, and that's the big difference between them. Stark was quite happy to be very talented at magic, uh, but to kind of coast on that. I mean, I, tr I tried to set up the idea that he was a naturally good magician, and he just sort of took that for granted, whereas Mason had to work a little bit harder and uh, had a much worse, Stark has a pretty bad background, but even the Masons, maybe goes a step further than Stark's in terms of just a bad, bad, like the worst childhood you can imagine. I forget, and, what was his childhood? Well, um, he saw his entire family ripped apart by wild dogs. That would be the childhood, okay. Yes, uh, <laughs> set on them by uh, a group of drug dealers. And, uh, and then he was kidnapped for several years on his own. So uh, when, he, when he came back from that, he, um, he wasn't in good shape. So I think that, you know, Stark had his own problems with family and things like that, but I think the, I think the meanness set into Mason, that, that, that dissatisfaction with existence with the world set in earlier mm -hmm. than with Stark. Stark, for all his problems, was able to kind of cruise on his own you know, not fucking caring about things and, and his genuine talent. So I think, you know, up until up until the last moment when Mason betrayed Stark, I think they, with all their differences and problems, I think they could have still been each other. Um, they could have been good allies, but with a little tweak either way, you know, Mason could have been the good guy and Stark could have stepped over and been the one to send Mason to hell. Interesting. Uh, in The Getaway God, there's a scene where Mr. Munin kind of is trying to explain to Stark his only hope to win the infinite game. And he's like, basically, there's no way you can learn. The best you can do is kind of to imitate his moves and maybe bring it to a draw. In a lot of ways, I kind of feel like that's kind of how you've had these two characters yeah. kind of going throughout the series. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think for all of their battles and for all of Stark's talent, because of Mason's drive and the cunning he's developed over the years, I do think Mason's a little bit better yeah. at all this stuff than Stark. Because in the end, Stark relies on his talent and his anger, whereas Mason thinks things out. I think uh, Munin's advice is a very good one for Stark. 
of course it doesn't work out the way uh, any of them plan, once again, because Mason is just a little ahead of everybody else, you know, he, his brain works in a different way. Uh, it's almost admirable, you know, in its own, in its own awful way. Going back to the character of Stark, I mean, he's this very angry, he's kind of just genuinely irreverent. He doesn't care about gods. He's like, do as you wish, I'm not going to listen to you. Right. Uh, kind of man, and, and it's understandable. You get thrown into hell, you're going to get some anger issues. Yeah, exactly. But where did you come up with this character? What was his genesis? He developed over time. I mean, the entire series of Sandman Slim came from two sentences in my notebooks, and they were unrelated. One uh, at the beginning of uh, one of the notebooks just said title or character name, Sandman Slim. And then somewhere else in my notes I found the phrase Hitman from Hell. And for whatever reason, and this happens to me a lot, those two things stuck together. And then it's almost like uh, forensic anthropology where you, know, you find a tooth in the ground and you try to extrapolate an animal from a tooth, half a skull, and maybe a rib. Mm-hmm. We start going, well, this is clearly a predator, so we had to have this kind of skull and this kind of jaw, and it would need this kind of vertebrae to support, you know, uh, a head like that. And Sandman Slim kind of came about the same way, where I want him to live in L.A., and then you start asking questions, okay, what relationship does this guy have with his past? Um, when he gets back to Los Angeles, who does someone like that need? Who would they know? What would he do? He would go back and try to find his past. What would be left of it? Where would a guy like that live once he got back? And it's just these, it's just asking a series of questions about sort of the logic of what would happen to that guy. It's like, it's, we see a lot of stories about escaping from hell, escaping from these places, but you have to ask the next question. You know, every, it's, I, I learned that years ago from a writing teacher who, um, talked about fairy tales and, and these books that, um, you know, even imagine the end of Star Wars with that giant, magnificent ceremony at the, at the end of the first movie. His question that I always took to heart was, who takes out the trash? Like, the next day or the next week, someone still is going to have to take out the trash. Um, and getting down to those kind of banalities and those small things in life... That's what I learned from that teacher, and that's the way I, I sort of developed Sandman Slim. And, I mean, you've actually done it to the degree, I think I read in one of your essays or in a previous interview, where you now have a spreadsheet, like, kind oh, of detailing yes. everything. I had to. I mean, who's alive? Who's dead? Where do things happen? Um, what's the relationship between this character and this character? Um, the structure of the God Brothers, you know, how they work, who they are, where that came from. Um, recently, you know, I keep finding holes in it, the little things I forgot. In the book I'm working on now, which is book seven, called The Girl with the Graveyard Eyes, um, Stark is going back to the old apartment he lived in, which is now occupied by Vidal and Allegra, and I couldn't remember where it was. I knew it was somewhere in Venice Boulevard. I was pretty sure it was on Venice Boulevard. I couldn't remember the building. I couldn't remember anything more than Venice Boulevard. So I had to go back really to the first book and scramble around through there and uh, now create a new little category in uh, the spreadsheet of where the hell he lived uh, when he first, well, before he went to hell. 
what would you say is the crazy note or craziest note that you have on that spreadsheet? Wow, that's a really interesting question. Um, maybe trying to list all the anime that Candy likes. I'm constantly learning about anime from people because I started a little anime thing and people are always think I'm an anime expert and the fact is I talk to anime experts. I lost track of anime sometime in the early 2000s and it's like I'm, tr I'm trying to get back into it mm -hmm. but it's so vast. Yeah. It's like where do you step back in? So now I have a whole list of things to start with and um, a friend of mine just gave me Kill La Kill. I haven't heard of that one. Um, I, I think... I think it's relatively new in this country. I don't know if it's new in Japan, but it looks pretty good from uh, so far. Yeah, the one I've been hearing a lot about is Attack on Titan, and like I've seen so many cosplayers already this con. Just which just... I think's on Adult Swim right now. It or might is that one? be. I think it is, but I know it's also on Netflix. So oh, okay. It's only a matter of time before I dive into it. <laughs> and I hear about Black Butler a lot too. Okay. People talk about that one. Cool. And well, you don't just like talk about anime within like you have. You seem to constantly refer to all these uh, genre unknown movies throughout all the books, and especially in Getaway God. It seems like, um, I think pretty much I only recognize a handful. One of them was mm. The Fifth Element. But um, are you a movie buff yourself? Very much, very much. I always wanted a, an excuse to have a character live in a video store so that they could comment on uh, all the movies that go in and out of the place. And it's part of Stark's character, too. I think. William Gibson, uh, talking about Neuromancer year, years ago, talked about a post-literate society. And I see Stark as one of those people where uh, I even say in one of the books that Stark has really never quite f finished reading a book. Mm -hmm. For him, the world is a visual thing. So for him, the world is movies and rock and roll. And you see <laughs> across the books, you kind of see the limitations of trying to live your life uh, according to... Uh, you know, old rock songs and uh, what you see in Sam Peckinpah movies. I love talking about the films, and uh, sometimes people think I'm doing a Tarantino, and really I'm trying to comment on Stark's character and show the development and how he sees the world through those different films. And I, I hope that's coming through to some degree by now. Yeah, I mean, and it's kind of interesting that you're speaking to him as a post-literate, but like when he was in hell, he was actually, he finally did start reading. Yeah, exactly. He was, exactly. He, was, was no TV. he was forced to, exactly. So. And that's, I think that's really the first time he ever did that. And, and it wasn't as bad as he thought. And, and in the end, books saved his life. Yep. And there's one other reason. It's just a personal thing with me on like why Stark would be more of a movie and a song fan. And for me, it's... <laughs> I'm very suspicious of writers who write about characters who love books. There's just something, it's a serpent eating its own tail. It's like people who write books for a living talking about people who read books, and it's the greatest thing in the world to them. There's something about that I kind of don't buy, or I don't want to participate in. I'd rather have somebody trying to live their life through rock and roll than just have that endless cycle of... Um, books loving books loving books there's something a bit tidy about it that I don't want to that I don't want to play in that's fair and it kind of matches the seat or the LA that you've created as well like this gritty underbelly yeah or at least not the high glam that we often see in fiction these days right exactly but, um, so for Candy her go-to comfort movie is Spirited Away yes what's yours 
The one I've, I've watched the most is probably Vim Vendors Until the End of the World, which isn't that well known over here, partly because you can't get the entire movie over here. Um, it, he actually did it as a miniseries for German television, and it's about five hours. And I think the longest version you can get in the United States these days is about two and a half. So most people have never seen the whole thing. But it's really a great work about, about the millennium and uh, what the future looks like in a very realistic Gibsonian kind of way, where the future comes to us in small ways. And the small ways change everything in our relationship to the world, and to technology, and to each other. Um, and, you know, like all these things, in the end, it's uh, about the end of the world and the love story. So uh, I, go, I go back to that one a lot. The only place, if you ever want to track down until the end of the world, the only place you can get a, a full version is an Italian DVD set that, as far as I know, you can only order through from Italy. But maybe these days with Amazon and eBay, you might be able to find it from there. And did this give rise to this idea of Max Overdrive turning into this niche shop where it has like these exclusive, um, you've never seen this before, we found yeah. it somehow through magical means. Right, yeah, cool very versions. much, very much. Plus Netflix. It's like, <laughs> it was a regular video, a video store at the beginning of the series, and I tried to ignore, you know, the, the, the importance of, of BitTorrent and streaming, but I had to have, at some point, it becomes ridiculous, I had to have the real world intrude on uh, Max Overdrive. So yeah, Netflix is killing them, so they have to become even more obscure in the kind of films they have. And in book seven, it's even more obscure what they're getting into. So it's, it's very, very rarefied taste, but they can, you know, they can rent a movie for a hundred bucks a night because you can't get it anywhere else, literally. And it's you know, and it is based on some video stores that I love. There's a store in, in uh, San Francisco called The Video, and they are very much that kind of place where they have regular videos. Plus, they have all this old stuff that's very hard to find, a lot of foreign stuff, and you see the troubles a store like that has uh, existing anymore. So I got some of it from real life too. Interesting. Yeah, we're, I know in New York we're kind of, not necessarily in video stores, but we're kind of seeing that in like the smaller kind of niche bookstores. It's like Absolutely, bookstores too. constant uh, struggle to find their way to stay open and stay relevant. Yeah. And now, um, kind of touching back on something you mentioned at the very beginning of this interview, you said that you definitely wanted this set in L.A., but you actually live in San Francisco. What drew you to L.A. as a uh, local? Well, I've lived in L.A. Okay. Uh, and I go back there all the time. So, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's a fascinating place. It's so vast. The history is so crazy. And again, I, I wrote two fantasy books, um, Butcher Bird and Dead Set, which is set in San Francisco, to acknowledge my current home. But there's something about the history of San Francisco that lends itself to fantasy too much and I find it a little softer than the, the feel I get from Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a more interesting town in terms of it's just flat out meanness. I mean, it's, you could look at Los Angeles like an old coal mining town. I mean, it's a company town. People are only in LA for one reason, showbiz. 
and you're either going up or you're going down or you're just circling it, trying to claw your way in. And that creates a weird hierarchy and a desperation that you don't find in other places. And that's one of the things I've always found interesting about the place is that constant, constant tension from the haves and the have-nots that you don't see in San Francisco. And then how do you think that influenced how you set up the world of Sam and Slim, the Sub Rosa, the, um, the Elder Gods, and Heaven and Hell? You, was well, that very that? much that um, it's a class system. L.A. is very much a class system, and that's really how I, I, I was thinking of it when I uh, put them together. Um, Stark and all his little lurker friends are really at the bottom of the barrel. There's worse off people like that you see in like uh, Kill City Blues, but they're close to the bottom, and. But they have connections to the upper classes, the Sub Rosa and uh, people like that, because of commerce, because they've had to have connections to them. The people higher up the food chain have had to come to them. And it's almost like a, a drug dealer dealing with regular people. They despise each other, but they need each other for the commerce to work. So it's very much a class thing for me. Interesting. I'm actually kind of curious about your own story, because you grew up in Brooklyn. Yes. Um, you lived in L.A., you're now in San Francisco. Like, what brought you to the West Coast, um, and what made you into a writer and photographer? I came to L.A. for the same reason everybody else did. What I said is, is, is showbiz. You know, I wanted to write for television and movies, and I uh, had the tiniest amount of success humanly possible that... Um, made me realize I didn't want to stick around and be one of those people circling uh, desperately. So when a girlfriend moved north to San Francisco, I followed her up. And I thought about L.A. in terms of my, of my, my novel writing, that if I was going to go back to L.A. and deal with scripts, it was going to be sometime in the future when L.A. was already interested in me. So I wasn't scrambling desperately to try to get in there was already um, even a small entrance point that, that I could start talking to people. And it's worked out. I mean, there's a the De Laurentiis company owns the uh, rights to Sandman Slim, and that's being developed right now. So, in fact, I'll be seeing some of the, those folks here at the convention uh, today or tomorrow. And, you know, that's led to some interesting things. So, that was my relationship with L.A., has always been very much sort of a love-hate. And, uh, but I do, I, I love the place in a, in, in a deep way. Um, even though it doesn't always come through the novels, people sometimes think I hate the place, but I really, really do love it for that company town finality. It's an honest city. You know, people want something from you, and you can either give it to them or you can't. And if you can't, people are done with you. And you have to admire that kind of honesty. One last question, because I know you got a place to be at one. Is there a question that you've always wanted somebody to ask, but that's never been asked of you? That's a terrible question to ask me, man. Wow. I know, but I just had to. Um, no one's ever asked me if I like plaid. Do you like plaid? No. No? So not moving to Williamsburg? Yeah, I've seen various plaids, don't like them. All right, well, um, anything else you want to add? 
I uh, hope people enjoy the book. The Getaway God is not the end of the series the way some people think it is. I'm working on book seven right now, and as I said, that's called The Girl with the Graveyard Eyes. And it's going to be a very different book. Having finished this arc, I want book seven to be much more of an old-fashioned L.A. crime novel with magic in it. So I keep telling people it's my James Elroy novel. Oh, this, okay, sorry, I'm going to have to ask one more question All because right. this just reminded me of something else. Um, as you just mentioned, uh, you're purposely making a different type of novel. You yeah. previously mentioned uh, you've always specifically tried to do something new with every book. Yeah. Um, how do you go about doing that? Well, you kind of think... It, I mean, I'm writing genre books, mm -hmm. and then you think of genres within the genre. So when I wrote the first three novels especially... I didn't know if I was going to get to write anymore, so I very specifically wrote three different kinds of books. So, one was a crime novel, sort of my Jim Thompson novel, the first one, Sandman Slim, and then um, Kill the Dead was more of a mystery novel, and then Aloha from Hell was a fantasy quest novel. And I thought of those very specifically, that I wanted to make each book feel a little different. And I'm trying to do that as I go along now. So it's just a matter of sort of choosing your form ahead of time, thinking about what the, what the shape of the story is going to be and wanting not to keep doing the same thing over and over again. I really worry about that. And that's why book seven is I'm going to try and make it a very different book. Awesome. Well, once again, thank you so much for spending a little time with us at San Diego Comic-Con. Thank you. It was fun. You've been listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast from HarperCollins Publisher, available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Today we spoke with Richard Kadri, author of The Getaway God, available now, and listened to an excerpt from the audiobook narrated by McLeod Andrews. We hope you will join us again. Thank you for listening.